Hello, and welcome to this evening's talk by Martin Schmidt on Freud's cancer and its influence on his theories. Here at Freud's last home, today, of course, the Freud Museum. My name is Jonathan Burke, as you've heard, and I'm a psychotherapist and editor of that book. Uh, it's a new book, uh, and it's entitled The Topic of Cancer, New Perspectives on the Emotional Experience of Cancer. It's largely psychoanalytic in content, but not entirely. And in many ways, that's the very point of the book, that a wide range of perspectives is needed in order for us to somehow engage with cancer. Now, before I introduce Martin to you, a short background uh, to the talk itself. A few years ago, in the autumn of 2011, the British Psychotherapy Foundation, uh, their Kentish Town site, which was then called the London Centre for Psychotherapy, hosted a series of seven talks on cancer and psychotherapy. I was one of the organisers, and we thought we had an interesting, certainly curious enough sounding name, uh, the title Top of Cancer. What we couldn't predict, of course, was the take-up. Who wants to hear about cancer? Who wants to talk about it? In the event, the series had an attendance rate far beyond our expectations, with therapists, analysts, doctors, nurses, members of the general public, all subscribing to it. Martin's, uh, who was already by that time a well-known, well-known to us as a popular lecturer and seminar leader, contributed tremendously to the series, leading one of the seminars, serving as a moderator for what we called simply an audience, an audience conversation on being with people with cancer. Now, we won't go into this seminar, nor the series, nor even the book that came in its wake. Um, actually, I was told that I should tell you something a little bit about the, uh, the image there, uh, which is a bit curious and a bit fuzzy right now. But uh, if you get, get closer to the book and uh, press by it, uh, you'll see that there are <laughs> uh, you'll see there are uh, little round circles in the uh, in the images that look like pictures. And I'll tell you what it is to be quite exact. Uh, it's called riddled. Still life with brain and prostate cancer cells. And it was done by some psychotherapists. Certainly one of them was a psychotherapist uh, where I work, uh, the, British, uh, uh, the British Psychotherapy Foundation. The way the book is divided uh, hints already at two pivotal aspects of the emotional experience of cancer. Part one is called Bearing the Unbearable. Basically, what it is to take in the experience of cancer to the extent that any of us can. Part two is called Containment and Creativity. That is, at a later point, what the experience of cancer may give rise to. Now, as for Bearing the Unbearable, one patient is quoted here uh, as saying that she need, she needed to align herself with those people she felt carried life inside them and were not tainted by death. 
But how are we as psychotherapists and fellow professionals to serve as these carriers of life when in the face of cancer we all feel so impotent? What happens if we, the professionals, are the ones with cancer? Not surprisingly, of course, the book doesn't provide answers. Maybe it only provides more questions, though what we hope it does offer is a new experience, a range of perspectives, so that cancer is no longer the taboo subject that it once was, but a topic that can actually truly be engaged with. Now, I don't want to give you a whirlwind tour of the book. It's actually wouldn't really be fair. It's not fair to the topic. It's not fair to the many contributors to the book. They're listed on flyers, but I don't know if we have the flyers here, but you'll see at the back of the book, or you'll, you'll see in the contents of the book, uh, just exactly who contributed. But I can tell you now that they include, and this is not all of them, the psychotherapist John Woods from the Porton Clinic, who writes of his work and his own experience of cancer and how one influenced the other. Tony Lee and Jane Elfer, who reflect on what they witness every day in their psychotherapy work with children at UCLH. With children, of course, and with their parents. Anne Lansley, who gives us a very powerful flavor, and this is maybe the first time uh, in cancer literature, of the experience of a cancer nurse, including the enormous pressure so often felt to just do something. Adrian Tuchman and his colleagues at the Marie Curie Hospice, which is not all that far from here, uh, uh, in their chapter, they focus on the ongoing struggle experienced by cancer survivors. And then we have Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg, the poet, Carol Sechemurti, the journalist and author Anne Karpf, and others, all writing from their own perspective, quite unique perspectives, and doing so with insight, warmth, and sensitivity. Well, I won't talk in the book anymore. I'm going to say I do hope uh, you agree with that and we'll be looking at it. Um, but right now, let me introduce to you Martin Schmidt, who in turn will introduce to you Freud. And I say that because it's a Freud most of us barely know. Martin's is the opening chapter of the book, and it's there for a particular reason. As we all know, psychoanalytic publications traditionally introduce their themes, just as they do, just as, for that matter, uh, going to any course in psychotherapy, introduced uh, by drawing on the work or referring back to the work of Freud in much the same ways as we might draw on the inspiration of our parents, uh, for example, or the sayings of our ancestors, our fathers. The topic of cancer being largely, though as I said, not entirely a psycholytic publication, also begins by drawing on Freud, but this time from a different, deeply personal perspective. As I said, of Freud we barely know. This evening's speaker, Martin Schmidt, takes up the story, but first a few words about Martin himself. Martin is a Jungian analyst, psychologist, and professional member of the Society of Analytical Psychology in private practice in London. He lectures widely both in the UK and abroad. 
His paper, published in the Journal of Analytical Psychology, Psychic Skin, Psychic Defenses, Borderline Process and Delusions, won the Fordham Prize for Best Clinical Paper of 2012, and was shortlisted for the Grandiva Award in New York last year by the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. Martin was for seven years a visiting supervisor, lecturer, for the International Association of Analytical Psychology in Russia and is currently the IAAP liaison for Serbia. Thank you all for coming. So I just see you all here. Great place to do this talk as well. Um, Ernest Jones, who is one of Freud's closest uh, collaborators and biographers, said that the last 20 years of his life were uh, marked by two features. One was the truly astonishing fresh outburst of original ideas, which affected a revolution in both the theory and practice of psychoanalysis. And the other was his courage, his courage in having to endure the political and financial dangers that threatened to engulf both him and his work, the loss of several of those very close to him, but not least the cruel tortures of the many years of suffering from the devouring cancer that ultimately killed him, and which I'm hoping to show played a part in a changing direction in his thinking and theories. Now, Freud was uh, a heavy smoker. He had a penchant for cigars and tried to give up many times, but found that he became depressed and couldn't think. So he very much relied on them. And in German, the, uh, the stuff of food is Lebensmittel. And he came up with a neologism for his cigars, which he called Arbeitsmittel, the stuff of work. Uh, they became the stuff of death. He lived for his work. He would be up and dressed by 7 in the morning, ready for breakfast, and patients would come from 12 till noon. Then there would be lunch shared with whichever members of the family were available. His wife, Marta, would sit at the opposite end of the table, and the maid would administer soup from the tureen. Then he'd go for a walk, and then be further consultations from 3 until 9 in the evening. After family supper, there'd be a game of cards, or another walk, before reading and writing until one o'clock. This was his normal routine, including weekends. That's a phenomenal amount of work on six hours sleep. This is Martha, who his wife is at the other end of the table. Now, rather than a doctor in the proper sense... Freud preferred to see himself as a uh, conquistador, a research scientist. Indeed, he concluded that he was rather suspicious of those who wanted to practice medicine. He saw it as a, an attempt to compensate for unconscious sadism, which I'm sure we've all met in certain doctors. And he said, I have no knowledge of having had any craving in my early childhood to help suffering humanity. My innate sadistic disposition was not a very strong one, so I had no need to develop this one of its derivatives. Now, Freud was aware of his genius. He expected the Nobel Prize. Max Scher, who was physician for over 20 years, said that this deeply human noble man didn't suffer fools gladly, but showed tender love and concern for those very close to him. 
Although he was prone to explosive outbursts, with his family he was called by his daughter even-tempered, even optimistic and gay. But he, cons- but he considered himself neither depressed nor pessimistic, but a realist, even though he did have bouts of depression, he didn't recognize them himself. Uh, he, uh, his definition of, an, of a pessimist is uh, a well-informed optimist. He was generous by nature. He provided financial support when he had the money for his, not only his extended family, but also friends and patients. Here's a picture of him with Martha. One of the reasons he became a doctor was in order to marry her. He was, he was, he was studying the uh, gonadic structure of eels for a while in Trieste, which didn't actually pay very well. But he needed to have a save up money to, in order to help his father out. His business was suffering, but also to have a, to have a dowry for his uh, wife. So one of the reasons he decided to study uh, medicine. Like Jung, he would, they both would have preferred to be archaeologists rather than doctors. This is the, where the money was. Now Martha, his wife, was a, a model housefrau. She's diligent, meticulous, very good with the children, devoted, but not particularly interested in psychoanalysis. And this is where Minna comes in. Minna, his sister-in-law, Martha's wife, was interested in psychoanalysis and became his confidant. And they went on holidays alone together to Swiss and Italian resorts, and he confessed to Young that they were lovers. So he was, a, he was a, very much in love with his uh, sister-in-law. But in later life, it was his daughter, Anna, who became the object of his deepest affection, his closest companion. However, they never really compared to men. He preferred the company of men, cultivating a series of very close, passionate relationships with people like Ernst Fleischer, Wilhelm Fleiss, and of course Jung. And he said, in my life, as you know, woman has never replaced the comrade, the friend. And with predictable candor, he alluded to this being a feminine quality, a sublimation of what he called androphile tendencies, or what we call latent homosexuality. Now, throughout his life, he was obsessed with death and plagued by attacks of toe disaster. And he was very much frightened of the unconscious, which is one of the reasons he wanted to conquer it. And although he was beset by bouts of hypochondria, his health was generally good. He had migraines and he had problems with his heart and, and uh, indigestion, but generally this did not prevent him from working. Now, long before his cancer was diagnosed, he was convinced he would die prematurely. He was remarkably superstitious as someone who really didn't believe in religious or magical thinking. And uh, he subscribed to a peculiar superstitious preoccupation with prospective dates of his own death. He he applied Wilhelm Fleiss's ideas of vital periodicity. Fleiss came up with this idea that, just like women have periods on 28-day cycles, men have a similar psychological cycle on a different pattern. And as a result, he was convinced that he would die, first of all, at the age of 40, and when this didn't happen, he thought it would be 42, then 43. 51 was the really the big, scary one, which he managed to get over. 62 and 81 and a half. Actually died when he was 83, so none of them actually came true. But he, he, uh, he harboured a very strong superstition. But, true to his genius, he tried to understand what it was about. And he proposed that superstition really derives from repressed, hostile, and murderous impulses. But he saw himself as a special case. He thought that 
his was more to do with about the anxiety of death which springs from having lost people when he was young and the normal uncertainty of life. We have to remember he lived through the First World War with death as a constant companion, very frightened of his sons being killed. In fact, one of them, Martin, was captured by the Italian army. He considers that his addiction to nicotine and smoking as a derivative of the primary addiction of masturbation, which he considered the original sin. And when, when he was 18... Uh, Sigmund was displaced from the breast by the birth of his brother Julius who died within a year and he was frightened that his hostile, murderous feelings towards this usurper of his beautiful mother's breast uh, somehow his omnipotence killed his brother and played some part in his, in his guilt and Lunitsky uh, argues that Freud must have also believed that his patricidal wishes had caused his father's death as well as that of his brother now, this is Ernst Fleischer, very, very close friend of Freud, and he suffered enormous remorse in relation to Ernst. Ernst was a brilliant physiologist and a, a devoted friend who actually helped Freud out a lot uh, with emotional support and money when, when Freud was nearly destitute. And he developed a pretty nasty morphine addiction, which, at the time, Freud was investigating the, the analogies effects of cocaine with collar. Collar beat him to the... the, the the paper which, which claimed this analgesic properties. But he uh, used cocaine on his um, father-in-law, and, and used it on himself, but he used it to help uh, Fleischer. It was seen at the time as a bit of a panacea. And at first the results were miraculous. It really helped Fleischer. But then caused a massive deterioration leading to his death. And this really upset Freud. He's feeling he's playing a part in his, in his beloved friend's death. And as a result, he visited him every night through harrowing nightly vigils up until Fleischer's death in 1891. And his contrition was amplified with the memory of the envy he had towards Fleischer, who he was convinced, quite wrongly, would be far more successful than him. Now, behind every fear is an unconscious wish. And through further self-analysis, Freud came to recognize that his fear of death was caused by feelings of guilt, expressed as aggression towards others. And this guilt stemmed from what he recognised as murderous fantasies in relation to his father, his brother, his sister Anna, Fleiss, Fleischer and Jung, amongst others. And he wavered between a dread of death and a longing for it in his letters, you see this, which, which we could see as an expression of the, both a fear of father and a desire for some kind of oceanic union with mother. As early as... He was also obsessed, really, with cancer. Now, he was diagnosed in 1923, but 24 years earlier, 1899, he referred to himself as a cancer. He said, I've turned completely into a carcinoma. He was terrified. He had very severe death anxiety. And there were cancer scares in 1914, which required a rectoscopy, and another one in 1917, when he discovered hardened patches in his mouth. And he seemed to know that something was up in 1921, when he was moved to write in a letter to Frenzy. The thought of death no longer leaves me at all. And sometimes I have the feeling that seven organs are vying with one another for the honour of being allowed to take, make an end to my life. When he actually did develop cancer in 1923, Grodek became convinced that it was Freud's own unconscious that had produced the malignancy and believed that his unconscious thoughts, better thoughts, had evoked these somatic processes and offered him treatment, which Freud refused. 
But he did borrow an important word from Grodek. Grodek came up with the term id, which Freud then adopted and used in this structural model of the psyche. Uh, this is his home in Moravia, Freiburg, Moravia, where he was born. Uh, it's no surprise that um, the Oedipal complex is so central to Freudian theory, as his own personal family history was an Oedipal drama. I think we see that all the great thinkers in psychoanalysis, the, the reason their theories have such um, authenticity and strength is because they reflect their own family situations. Jung had problems with his own psychotic anxieties, which is why he became quite an expert on the psychotic process. Bowlby had trouble with attachment. Freud certainly had problems with the Oedipal complex. His father, Jacob, was a wool merchant of limited means and was only 17 years old when he married Sally Kanner in 1832. And she bore him two sons, Philip and Emmanuel. Uh, Sally died 20 years later, and Jacob married Rebecca, who then also died. Uh, and in 1855, at the age of 39, so Jacob was nearly 40, he married for a third and final time. And his third bride was the beautiful Amelia Nathanson. And this, she was just 19 years old, so she was about the same age as his sons, really, who bore him a further eight children. And Sigismund Schlomo Freud, born on the 6th of May in 1856 in, in Freiburg, in this house, was the first and most cherished of Amalia's children. I think I've got a picture, it's an early picture from here, of, of Sigmund. Golden Siggy excelled academically and was given special treatment by his mother. He was already reading Shakespeare in English at the age of eight, so he was, like Jung, he was a bit of a polymath, he could speak five languages. He not only experienced guilt at having won his mother's love at the expense of his father and other siblings, but he also reaped the benefits this is him with his mother. He said, If a man has been his mother's undisputed darling, he retains throughout life the triumphant feeling, the confidence and success, which not seldom brings actual success along with it. As Sigmund adored his beautiful mother and became aware of wishing he could have her to himself at the expense of his father and siblings. Now, this was an alien concept to Jung, who's, who was very suspicious of his own psychotic mother, who was hospitalized when he was three. And instead, uh, Jung felt supported by Mother Nature. It was the light filtering through the birch trees and the mountains and the lakes, which became his mother, his nature, natural mother. Later, Freud adopted Jung's term, uh, use of the term complex, and applied it to the Oedipal complex. And Jung, in turn, expanded the theory by introducing the concept of the Electra complex to portray the difficulties girls experience in relation to their mother in competition with the father. And this is uh, Freud with his daughter Anna. You see her loom in the room next door, and our home is the house. Well, the Anna Freud Center is just down the road. And Freud was also very guilty about giving his father a modest funeral. And his unresolved Oedipal legacy seems to have been handed down to Anna, who gave up her, who gave up her life, life or hope of a family of her own, really, to, to support her father. Interestingly, he gave her the name of the sister he least liked. And he was unable to help her resolve her father complex, in his own words. And she, he even referred to her as his Antigone. Antigone, if you know the myth, was uh, Oedipus's favourite daughter who guided him after he blinded himself. To make matters work, Freud, worse, Freud took her into analysis, secretly, 
He interpreted her dreams and interfered with her budding courtships. And she became further enmeshed in her father's world as his secretary, confidant, colleague, and nurse, even um, being his, uh, even speaking, giving his lectures when he could no longer speak properly due to the cancer. And she was far more intimate and physically involved in her father's care than his own wife. Now, in those early, heady days of psychoanalysis, many pioneers fell prone to incestual Oedipal enactments. Friends, he kissed his analyst's hands and wanted to marry one of them. Jung had affairs with at least two of his. Anna Freud analyzed her nephews, Klein her own children. And we know that Freud analyzed his daughter, offended a number of his favorite patients, including Princess Oregon, the part of Frenzy. On occasion, Freud fed his patients. These were waived, and analyses were conducted during evening strolls in the park. Some patients were given intimate information about his personal life, and one, Horace Fink, who was also a psychoanalyst, was encouraged by Freud to divorce his wife in order to marry one of his patients. And Freud was not the supreme practitioner of his art. Frenzy complained bitterly about his analysis, which was eight weeks long, which is usually a bit longer than that, you say. And uh, people like Alex Strachey and Melanie Klein found Carl Abraham a much sounder analyst. Now, the cancer of friends played a massive, massive influence on so many of the people who knew died of cancer. In 1912, his close friend Binswanger underwent surgery for a malignant tumor that survived. But less fortunate was Anton von Freund, who was one of the wealthiest and generous supporters of psychoanalysis. He, he paid for the publishing house that published Freud's works. And he succumbed to the same cancer, just as he'd done before with Fleischel. Freud visited his dying friend every day and did all he could to comfort him throughout his decline. And his death in 1920, Freud described as a mighty personal blow and a significant factor in his ageing. Also in 1925, one of his few unfaltering allies, Carl Abraham, also fell to a lung cancer. But there's worse to come. Just two days after von Freud was buried, Freud's daughter Sophie, here on the left, uh, who was only 26 years old, uh, with two young children, and pregnant at the time, contracted pneumonia. Uh, the Martha and Sigmund were desperate to try and visit her, but the train lines were down, and they couldn't. So they, they waited anxiously for news, and the news was bad. She died. So this was absolutely dreadful news coming so, so soon after von Freund's death just a few days there was almost too much for him to bear and he said and I quote I, this very deep within I perceive the feeling of a deep insurmountable narcissistic insult and he doubted whether he could love anyone again just three years later shortly after Freud realised he had cancer himself Sophie's son you see on the right this is Heinz Rudolph and, Jung, and Freud's favourite grandchild died of tuberculosis age four. And it was the only occasion that, in his life that Freud was, Freud was known to have shed tears. And he said, this dreadful event affects him more profoundly than any of the others he'd suffered. And he said, I myself was aware of never having loved a human being, certainly never a child, so much. I find this loss very hard to bear. I don't think I've ever experienced such grief. Perhaps my own sickness contributes to the shock. I work out of sheer necessity. Fundamentally, everything has lost its meaning for me. 
So this is an onslaught, an onslaught. And it's, it's remarkable he was able to work at all when he was having to deal with this terrible loss at the same time. Now, during the 16 years of his struggle with cancer, he witnessed the rise of Nazism, the invasion of his hometown, and the start of World War II. At the age of 67, in 1923, he detected a leukoplastic growth on the right side of his palate and jaw. This is a precancerous condition of white patches in the inside lining of the mouth, attributed to smoking. Uh, first he chose to tell no one, but then confided in his friend, Felix Deutsch, who at once recognized the malignancy, but lied to Freud. He didn't tell him it was cancer. He said, no, this is something we, we can simply cut out and you'll be okay. And later, Freud was understandably furious with being misled in this way. And although he didn't know it, his own self-diagnosis of a buccal cancer, a cancer of the palate, was correct. So, he then went to Marcus Hijek, a leaning rhinologist, nose expert, to perform the operation. And Hijek was cavalier, far too cavalier, and thought he could do it as day surgery. And, um, and Freud, after the operation, he hadn't told his family, he hadn't told Martha or Anna, and started to hemorrhage. He was put in a room, he shared a room with a dwarf, and just a curtain between the, the two. The dwarf was being treated for cretinism. And he started to hemorrhage after the operation, and tried to call for help, but couldn't, because he couldn't speak, because of the pain in his mouth. And he pulled the emergency valve, which was broken, and was lying there bleeding, probably to death, if it wasn't for the dwarf who rang for help. So the dwarf saved his life, and they managed to stop the, the bleeding. Martha and Anna came and just found him in a terrible state. And from that day on, Anna, uh, Freud refused any other nurse than Anna. Anna was preferring his wife to be his nurse for his cancer. The next 16 years of his life, he endured an agonizing ordeal of over 33 surgical procedures while work, carrying on working, which is shocking. I don't know how he did that, but 33 operations in 16 years. Later that year, uh, a malignant ulcer in the hard palate invaded the neighboring tissues of the upper part of the lower jaw and cheek, and a radical operation was now needed, which consisted of cutting his jaw from his, the corner of his mouth to his ear, and removing the entire upper jaw and palate, leaving the nasal cavity and mouth with nothing to separate them. Now this thing on the left is what he called his monster. It's a prosthesis, a type of denture, which was put into his mouth to separate the nasal cavity from the mouth. And it severely affected his capacity to eat, to drink, to sleep, and to talk. It was incredibly difficult to put in. Sometimes it took 30 minutes. It co caused constant ulceration and pain. And he permitted himself to continue to smoke, but had to use a peg to hold his bite open in order to put his cigar in. And damage to the eustachian tube left him completely deaf on his right side, so he had to change the position of his couch and chair so that he could still hear his patients. He was unable to see any patients until the new year and earned nothing for six months. It's something very familiar, which you'll see downstairs. If you're lucky enough to see, I hope you all popped in to see it. It's fantastic. It's still has such power, isn't it? So he was unable to see any patients until the new year and earned nothing for six months. And on January the 2nd, 1924, he resumed analysis with six patients a day, but was exhausted by the exertion, which prompted him to write, the right thing to do really would be to give up 
work altogether and obligations and sit in a quiet corner until I died. But the temptation made the necessity to go on earning something as long as one spends so much is strong. Now, before the diagnosis, he'd already started to reduce his workload to eight patients a day. So before he was seeing nine or ten. Uh, despite the cancer, he remained stoic and continued to see at least four a day until he was 75, when he temporarily dropped to three. In Easter 1924, just after the operation of the cancer, he took his first weekend holiday in 38 years. It's, it's a superhuman person. It's, not a, it's, it's like talking about a superhuman. That was a, now, multiple operations, which included skin grafts, excisions, cauterizations, radium treatments. And he refused sedatives up to the very end. When he was in hospital, he would let, allow some morphine. But when he was at home, the strongest thing he'd take was aspirin. But as the sores became more painful, it was necessary to take stronger pain relief. And ironically, the, orth- the uh, analgesic of choice was orthoform, which was a fillip from his earlier work on cocaine. It's part of the Novocaine group. So he played a part in discovering his own analgesic. And in 19, by 1929, six years after the cancer had been diagnosed, it was necessary to appoint a regular doctor to attend to him on a daily basis. And, and Scher, this is Max Scher, and he said that Freud was a model patient, gracious, polite, able to endure considerable pain without grumbling. And they agreed a contract. Scher, it consists of two things. One, that Scher should never lie, like, like Deutsch had done. And also that when the time came, and that the suffering was pointless and there was no reason for carrying on living in agony, that he would help him end it. And they shook on this. The cancer began to obey by removing precancerous tissue, but the malignancy returned for good in 1936. Now, Freud's cancer did not stop him working. On the contrary, he was teeming with ideas and wrote profusely. After all, he said the conditions were favourable for writing because a modicum of misery is essential for intensive work, which is recognised. And all in all, for the detection of his illness until he died, he published over 40 significant papers and major works, including the ego and the id, inhibition of symptoms of anxiety, as well as his attacks on God. In addition to this phenomenal bibliography, he rewrote countless letters, prefaces, tributes, and obituaries and continued to write in his dotage with analysis terminable and interminable and constructions and analysis both produced when he was over 80. And the first paper, Analysis Terminable and Terminable, was considered by Jones one of the best he'd ever, he ever wrote. Now, the terrible loss of his friends, his daughter and beloved grandson, together with the relentless onslaught of his own cancer, had a huge impact not only on his mood, but his writing. And this change in direction, reflecting a uh, understandably darker tone in his prose. He now used the language of death and destructiveness rather than pleasure-seeking to explain the etiology of anxiety, aggression and guilt. However, the groundbreaking breaking beyond the pleasure principle, where he changed his ideas and introduced uh, the conflict of the life and death instincts, was written before Sophie's death and the onset of his cancer. But nevertheless, the term death instinct first appeared shortly after she died, and I find it hard to imagine that his own intimate involvement with Anton von Freund's death and his other friend's death with cancer, together with his presentiments about his own malignancy and his fear of death, did not influence his writing of it. 
Now, before Beyond the Pleasure Principle, he considered psychological health to pivot upon this axis of hunger and love. So he, as I'm sure most of you will know, he envisaged a dualistic system where love expressed in the sexual instincts as the survival of the species and pleasure-seeking, and the sexual drives, he argued, were at odds with hunger, expressed in the ego drives, which serve self-preservation and reality. But in 1920, he dramatically revised his theory. Now the libido, instead of being seen at variance of the life instinct, or eros, is considered its sexual aspect. And he adopts a position that Jung had long argued, namely that life force is not only sexual in nature, but pervades all psychic life. The counterpart to Eros is the death instinct, Thanatos. And interestingly, this uh, death instinct was originally conceived of by Sabine Spielrein, who was one of the patients Jung slept with. And you've probably seen and heard about that in that film, The Dangerous Method. Now, originally he considered aggression as uh, a response to frustration. But now he argued that it was innate. It was there from the beginning. In fact, aggression finds expression when the death instinct is turned, deflected outwards. And indeed, if, a, uh, if one is, is uncomfortable with one's own death instinct, then there's a reason to deflect it outwards, if you feel under threat by it. And he configured this conflict between the life and death forces at the centre of his psychology. And the struggle was now seen as the main cause of anxiety and guilt as well. So before 1920, he saw guilt as the product of infantile sexuality. Now was aggression was its prime source. There's something far more aggressive and deadly in his writing since his cancer. And in his paper, a fantastic paper, called The Economic uh, Problem Masochism, he said something very important, which is that he saw the sex and the destructive instinct at the heart of sadism. He said this, uh, that the part of this destructive instinct is placed directly in the service of the sexual function. It's a sadism problem. Now, this was revolutionary. This is a revolution in psychoanalysis. So, so he's, he's, cha- he's ta- changed direction uh, se- severely in his concepts of introducing life and death drives, which is also the heart of Kleinian theory. And together with his new ideas on the dynamics of aggression, he, he reshaped his ideas on psychoanalysis. And similarly, his views on anxiety changed. Originally, he understood anxiety to be the result of repression, but now he saw that it was the opposite, that anxiety causes repression. In fact, all the defense mechanisms, which is splitting, projective identification, reaction formation, sublimation, these are all uh, responses of the ego to anxiety. After the onset of his cancer, Freud took on God well and proper. So, so earlier he'd already had a go at him, exposed religion's role, in promulgating the denial of death either by promising an afterlife or reincarnation. But now he focused on the role of religion in civilization, producing three notable works, The Future of Illusion, Civilization of Discontents, and Moses and Monotheism, which he published here. And here was the culmination of a lifetime's work. So he was applying his, his exacting study of individuals to political themes. And he proposed that the principal purpose of civilization is to, to defend us against nature against its elements, its disease and death. And he said, religious doctrines are designed to deny these realities. Man makes a divinity of his father. The belief in a holy patriarch who accepts accepts retribution on those who defy him uh, and promises life everlasting is a projection of the superego, a man's omnipotent wish to avoid death. And he saw God and religions as neurotic consolations. I personally agree with half of his very famous um, uh, axiom 
the half I agree with is that neurosis is an individual religion. In my experience, clinically, every neurosis is an individual religion with its own rules and creed and things that people should and shouldn't do. I disagree with this idea that religion is a universal neurosis, which is the other half of the uh, axiom. Freud's pessimistic vision of the future uh, reflects his negative view of the id. He's, he, one of his, another of his axioms was, where there is id, ego shall be. He, he saw that our job was to try and become civilized, to convert this rather negative, beastly, unconscious force into something civilized and acceptable, controllable, ego. And he saw mankind as a barbaric horde destined to be forever unsatisfied. Humanity itself is a destructive force. And with regard to civilization, he said that mankind's unfit for it, really. And the great unknown, he or it, lurking behind fate, will someday repeat this experiment with another race. That sounds like God to me. <laughs> but, uh, and, he, and here in this nihilistic vision, Freud replaces God with this great unknown. Now, Hitler came to power in January 1933, and by May was burning Freud's books. In spite of everything, he was able to see five patients again and enjoy life in 1935, despite the cancer at the age of 79. And he didn't lose his sense of humour. When one of his friends, Elizabeth Rotten, came round and asked him how he was, he replied, How a man of 80 feels is not a topic for conversation. <laughs> And 1938 brought the Anschluss and Hitler's reign of terror to Austria. Stores, homes, synagogues were all looted and persecution of Jews was widespread. And then when Anna was arrested and interrogated by the Gestapo, Freud knew it was time to leave. His money was confiscated by the Nazis, but he'd been clever enough to secrete some savings abroad. And there was a concerted effort by his friends and ex-patients like Princess Marie Bonaparte and Ernest Jones and other friends to help him leave. Even Mussolini and President Roosevelt pulled strings to facilitate his emigration. You might think it's odd that Mussolini did, but this is because Freud treated Mussolini's cousin. And they were able to secure a safe passage, here they, here they are on the train, via Paris uh, to, to London. But even here there was tragedy, because he had to leave behind four elderly sisters, all of whom perished in the concentration camps. In February 1939... A biopsy indicated that the now inoperable malignancy was spreading. And he'd already started to say goodbye and entertain some distinguished guests, including H.G. Wells, Arthur Kersler, Salvador Dali, and Virginia Woolf. And for a number of years, the exchange corresponds with Thomas Mann and Albert Einstein. I didn't see it here, but one of my favorite exhibits in the uh, Freud Museum, which I'm sure you have in the archive, is a letter from Einstein to Freud congratulating him on his genius. And if Einstein congratulates you on your genius, I don't think you need a second opinion. And he was thrilled to see Moses and Monotheism published. That was nevertheless an act of defiance to attack Christianity as a delusion. It's worth noting here he also performed a volte face. Having always disputed Jung's notion of a collective unconscious, he now went even further than Jung and adopted the Lamarckian idea of the inheritance of acquired characteristics. And this took the form of what he called inherited tradition, the survival of memory traces in the archaic heritage, which men have always known they have once possessed a primal father and killed him. In Jung's theory of archetypes, he argued that archetypes are inherited forms without content, whereas here, for he was arguing that primal fantasies and actual memories are inherited. 
In July 39, there was further deterioration with alteration of the cancerous tissue. And he'd had enough. And the necrosis of the skin and bone produced a powerful feta. This is a stench from the sepsis. And his favourite chow, who he loved, couldn't bear the smell and refused to approach her master, and instead cowered in the corner downstairs here. And Freud understood all too well what this meant as he looked at his pet with a tragic and knowing sadness. His skin became gangrenous and while the odour grew worse, and a mosquito net had to be kept, had to be used to keep the, the, at bay the flies that attracted by the smell. And despite sleepless nights, he refused sedation, spending his last days here, downstairs, looking at the garden and reading. Balzac's Le Peau de Chagrin was the last book he read. And on September 21st, he reminded his doctor of their old agreement. He said, My dear Sher, you certainly remember our first talk. You promised me then not to forsake me when my time has come. Now it's nothing but torture and makes no sense anymore. And when Sher let him know that he hadn't forgotten, Floyd said, Thank you. Please tell Anna about this. Now, of course, she wanted to delay the inevitable, but Sher persuaded her that it was pointless, and later that day he injected Freud with three centigrams of morphine, two centigrams being the usual dose of sedation. And he fell into a peaceful sleep, and when he became agitated, Sher repeated the dose and gave a final injection the next day. And Freud slipped into a coma and died at three o'clock in the morning here on September the tw- 23rd, 1939, aged 83. Cancer helped him to overcome his lifelong fear of death. He loved life, and despite his torment, was grateful for the heightened sense of being alive that the cancer gave him. He said that his state of mind vacillated between a little island of pain, floating on a sea of indifference, and a sense of what he called life's special and enhanced charm, which comes with knowing that one is going to die, and that every moment may be your last. And when he became convinced he had cancer, he was more able to appreciate the wonder of springtime, which prompted him to write ruefully, what a pity that one has to become old and sick to make this discovery. And he felt that it was the eternal transitory nature of life which makes it so beautiful. Ah, that went too far. One of his favourite poems at this time, which he could re- recite off by heart, was Frühlingsgläuber, Faith in Spring, by Uhland. And this is one of his favourite poems, which goes like this. The world grows lovelier each day. We don't know what still may come. The flowering will not end. The farthest, deepest valley is a bloom. Now, dear heart, forget your torment. Now everything must change. He was buried, uh, he was cremated, and then uh, his ashes put in this pot. You can see the, the twin of it downstairs, which is a gift from Mary Louise Bonaparte. And Martha's ashes were added in 1951. Sadly, I think it's been stolen uh, by thugs from the, from the crematorium, which is But that's it. Okay. We now have um, half an hour for comments or questions or Story of Superman rather than a man. <laughs> Hello. Uh, I was curious. You talked about his own insight into, I mean, his own papers. I was just curious to what extent, if any, he wrote about 
Ah, no, yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, no, I don't think he did. Not that I'm aware of. I, and I did a lot of research. I read loads of his letters and biographies, and I didn't see anywhere his insight into his own effect. I mean, he made often he made references to his godless cancer and this, the blight. Yes, but he, but he didn't. He, but he didn't describe um, that the cancer or his relationship with the lack of God was was. Um, uh, influencing his series, which is which is interesting because I think it clearly did. But but it's one of his genius. The things about him, um, which is so genius, was his capacity to be reflexive. To exactly, have, that's why. Yeah, I mean, one of the, there's one story which is amazing, which is that he'd forgotten why he'd forgotten to order blotting paper. If you know this story, and most of us, if we'd forgotten to order blotting paper, would go, "I must remember to order blotting paper," and would write it down. But that wasn't enough for Freud. Freud was going, there must be a reason I've forgotten to order blotting paper, because I have a psychological life, so, so what is the reason? And he's thinking, why have I forgotten to order the losh papier? Losh papier being blotting paper in general. And then he realised, when he orders blotting paper, he doesn't write down losh papier, he writes down another name for it, which I have in German, which is fleiss papier. And he just had a terrible breakup with Wilhelm Fleiss, which he was incredibly angry and upset about because they were really close buddies. And he went, that's it. That's why I've forgotten to blossom paper. Because I didn't want to be reminded of my breakup with my friend Fleiss. Yeah. Genius. Who thinks like that? <laughs> Who thinks like that? Remarkable genius. If it is the case that his his theory, how much does this undermine whatever objectivity there was in his theory? I, not at all, I think, because, for example, the Eadable complex, the centre of psychoanalytic thinking and practice, um, was alien to Jung because he didn't experience it in the same way as Freud. He certainly wasn't aware of experiencing it in the same way because he was suspicious of this of his mad mother who was ugly and authoritarian and abandoned him and Jung didn't like to use the word love ever since that happened whilst for Freud it was his direct experience and through his own personal uh, experience of the Oedipal complex and the fact he, you know, despite his understanding of it he still couldn't escape uh, passing it on to his daughter Anna the, the, the negative effects of it this doesn't make it any less real you know, this was his real experience, which he then wrote about, which has become invaluable. The fact that he had a real experience of being eaten away by cancer, and the experience of feeling there was no God to support him in it, made his theories, I think, also authentic. And it depends whether you believe in a one objective truth, whether you sort of buy into the sort of Aristotelian, Platonic, Socratean idea that there's one objective reality which we have to reveal which traditional psychoanalysis buys into. If you buy into that theory, and there's only one truth, then you could make the argument, the point you're making, which is that, therefore, it's a distortion. But if you have a more, uh, if, which is the correspondence theory of truth, but if you buy into more the idea that there is a pluralistic way of thinking of what the truth is, and there are many, more than one truth, then it's as true as any other theory. Yes, well, I, I suppose I'm going to follow up this by saying, if it was real for Freud, does that make it real for anybody else? No, I would say no. But it would certainly make it real for, 
for a certain group of people, that would be their reality. So I don't, I don't think Freud's theories are a description of the truth of the psyche. I think they're one, they're a beautiful language of describing one map on which you can understand the psyche, an incredibly valuable one as well, a, a genius that he is. But there are other towering geniuses who devise different maps in different languages which are equally useful. It's my, my, my position, I think. Can I just, uh, one or two about truth? Um, I just want to take issue with a couple of, the, I don't know, thank you, it was passing, but just um, take issue with some of the biographical details, mm-hmm. because I would say some of them are still open to discussion rather than necessarily being fact. fact. Yeah. For instance, the fact that you had an affair with his sister in law, Nina, is still open to debate. I think many people said he didn't. Suddenly hotted up. And in fact, the couch on which Freud died has actually been got out of him just next door, and yeah, Freud was so interested in that. Um, and also, you know, his analysis of Anna, which of course that would not be regarded as true, but she was also analysed by her So it wasn't. It's, and also her relationship with him, I think, is, is a little bit more complex. A lot of it was her own choice. Uh, although you might what's, argue why she made those that? choices. <laughs> what's his one's own choice when you're a daughter of a child? Dangerous ground. But yeah. um, I think it's a slightly more no, no, nuanced uh, picture. No, abs- absolutely. I mean, it's similar with Jung. There's still some debate about to what degree he had um, sexual relationships with Sabina Spielrein and Tony Wolfe, for example. We don't know. There's some things we can't know because they are only between people. So, for example, Jung, Jung says he confessed this to me. But then Jung and Freud had a terrible split exactly. and they yeah, may have been spreading rumours. But I wonder, because after Freud died, Jung was remarkably respectful about the contribution Freud made to what he meant. So, but you're right, of course, these things are... It's not like I'm saying, well... Or everything I've said has come from some document... The document may be false. Basically, I wrote this chapter based on reading most of his letters, to Fister, to, to Forenzi, to Mario Fulis Bonaparte, most of his biographies. So it's, it's basically a collation of different... different yeah, and please don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to... Uh, no, not at all. No, but I think it's important to say... Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's important to say that there are some things... Did someone have an affair with this or not? Yeah. <laughs> so that's why. Yeah. What role did um, Freud's wife play in his later life? I love your accent, it's fantastic. <laughs> 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 That's perfect. Um, um, what <laughs> well, it's Carol's curious because he started off as a jealous suitor of her because there was a uh, an artist who sent her a letter saying he fancied her, basically, and he's really, really upset, Freud, because he felt that artists have the, he said, artists have an advantage over us scientists when it comes to women, because they, ha- they know how to find the key to unlock a woman's heart, whereas us scientists spend hours struggling with the design of the lock. <laughs> so, he, so, he started, so he started as a very jealous suitor, and was very much in love with Martha. But the impression I get is that she took up this position of being a very di- diligent and devoted and faithful supporter of him and, and her children. 
and his children. But he, she wasn't particularly interested in psychoanalysis. He couldn't talk to her about his work. Whereas Minna, he could. She was a confidant, so they could, they could talk about psychoanalysis together, which was important for him. So I think her role was... It's also curious that Anna became the nurse. That's curious, that he preferred... There's more than one document that describes his preference for his daughter to be his nurse, his daughter to be the one who called upon. His daughter was his secretary, his confidant, his speech reader. Collated his papers. He, she was the person he was most involved with. But Martha did come here. Yes, oh yes, Martha was here, yes, and she ran the house. And she, you know, she, she, she was mother. But in terms of his personal care and conversations about what mattered most to him, it was Anna, not Martha. Just interesting reflection of what is down cancer, per se. All cancer was influential. Freud developed any other. I think, well, from my own experience, I think cancer is a blessing and a curse because a quarter of us are going to die from it in this room. So one in four will die from cancer. I think probably one in four will die from a heart, some kind of heart condition. And then the other half of us, pot luck, lucky dip, what takes us. But a quarter of us are going to die. And my father died of cancer. And I was grateful for it because it gave us two years to have conversations which we would not have had. So there's something about that aspect of cancer which I think is a blessing, because it allows you to find the courage to say, have those difficult conversations which a bus hitting you doesn't allow. So I think that his cancer played a big part in being able to reflect on what life is, what death is, what fury is, what frustration is, what, what pain is, and how to manage it. So I think his cancer and the suffering Involved and the fear, the terror, was a, a massive uh, educator for him. And how I really do, you know, by the time he died, he wasn't frightened of death anymore. And this is a man who was terrified of death throughout his whole life, and he was he welcomed. So, I, so I think the cancer, as opposed to some other conditions, especially this took 16 years, was a massive influence. I think understanding of death and the dynamics of death and the dynamics of life. <coughs> um, just reading further, I was always puzzled by how like, the power of death in society. But when you like actually read it, you said that death um, displays a big problem with general people like possibly competently. And uh, he also goes to the extent of saying that the unconscious does not sort of conceive or has the, the feeling and, and the idea of that sort of well, I'm quite happy to talk about the psychology of death. I think it's in, I think Jung had an interesting contribution on this as well. Because he because he over a third of his patients were over sixty five and successful people who had basically found life meaningless were coming to him because they didn't see any meaning in life anymore. And one thing he noticed is that when he was treating psychotic patients or patients who were about to become psychotic, the psyche would react with warnings and terror. So when the psyche feels it's going to fragment, then the, the patients will often produce nightmares and, and, and night terrors and extreme anxiety. 
But when he was treating people with terminal illnesses who knew they were going to die, Psyche didn't panic. He said the psyche behaved as if it was going to continue. And he argued that well, we know the body deteriorates, but psyche is not located in time and space and behaves as if nothing's, it's, it's just going to continue. Which is an interesting idea. It doesn't prove an afterlife, it doesn't prove anything. But it's an interesting observation about the mind's relationship to death. So it goes back to the earth, it's like all of the um, between soul and well, I think in analysis it's fascinating. Well, so I, I work as a psychoanalyst. And it's, it's, fear of death is a really common screen to project uh, terror onto. So, because it's something we all... It's a perfect symbol of the unknown. We don't know. No one knows. People claim to. No one knows what happens when you die. So it's a wonderful thing to express a fear of death. A fear of something. A fear of the unknown onto. But also, one of the things I've noticed is a lot of people of if they're terrified of something, it's usually happened. So if you're terrified of death, usually something's died. So then it's, it's worth thinking about what is it that's died in this person? If something's already died. If you're so terrified of it, why? Because it's as natural as birth. Something's going to happen to us all. Why are we so terrified of something that's so normal, so ordinary? It happens to everyone. Why should that be a form of terror? And usually it's because it's such a wonderful screen of the unknown to project experiences that have already happened onto it. People are often most frightened of something that's already happened, actually, in my experience. We have got time, yeah? Yes. I, well, I think he was, he was so convinced he was going to die, he felt that... So this was way prior to uh, 24 years. Before, yes. It was, it was physical. He was describing himself in terms of a thorn inside the establishment or any other world, or it was purely physical. No, it wasn't a thorn inside the establishment. I think it was a reflection on his, his fear of death. So he's, you know, he's so full of total dissent, so full of death anxiety. I am a cancer. I, I think he was aware that his death anxiety was a cancer as well. He was eating him away. And this is, this is also remarkable about the man as well. He's so superstitious. Someone so such a brilliant, clear mind, so superstitious. And yet was able to think, okay, why? Why am I superstitious? What's it mean? What is it about? That's remarkable. Are we nearly there? I think we are. Okay. just want to thank everybody for coming today. Uh, it's a strange topic to say I hope you enjoyed it, but I think we hope that it's been worthwhile. I just want to thank uh, Martin for giving us this wonderful presentation. The good news is we've only missed the first half, and so if you rush to the pub, you can still see Man United against Bayern, <laughs> which is what I'll be doing.